Let's pray as we open God's precious word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy and your compassion. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have given us your precious word and contained within your word are promises. And when you make a promise, Lord, you do not break it. And so long ago, you called your people Israel to yourself. You chose them as a nation who should be as a light to the world, reflecting who you are. And even though, Father, there are things that they failed in so many times, yet your promises were made with an unconditional covenant. And so we see our Heavenly Father, you do not renege on the promises that you've made. And so we pray as we share together, as we open your precious word, that we may see that you still have a plan and a purpose for the people of Israel. And that plan and purpose impacts on us. So we thank you, Heavenly Father, for your grace. We thank you that you can be trusted. We thank you for your precious word. Now, Lord, be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's just going to bring it up for us. There we go. Can you bring it up the back as well, please, Mayor? Okay. All right. Why Israel matters to the church. That's our subject this morning. Now, the land of Israel is some of the most sought-after real estate anywhere upon planet earth. This is a, it's only a tiny nation. As you can see, 424 kilometers right from the very top to the very bottom down at Ilat and 114 kilometers at its widest point. It's about one third the size of Tasmania. And yet it dominates, doesn't it? It dominates our news. It's often on there when things are happening in Israel, everybody in the world knows about it. Now, there's a lot of controversy and a lot of competition. We know that this is sacred land, particularly uh, the city of Jerusalem, which is pretty well right in the middle there. And it's uh, it's sacred uh, to Jews, uh, to Muslims, and of course to us as Christians. Recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel by President Trump in 2017 clearly exposed the, the great depth of uh, anti-Semitism that exists, uh, not only in the Middle East, but also in the world. And uh, we see that their claims to this great city as their eternal city uh, really offends other people around the world. As to its ge- geographic position, this is a, a, an incredible place where, where it is. Uh, Israel's only a, a very small nation right there. And right beside it, we've got Jordan and on this side, Egypt. Both have been enemies at different times. Now, for the last several decades, there have been uh, agreements. There's peace agreements between Jordan and Israel and Egypt and Israel. But there are others that have joined just in the last couple of years. So we've got what are called the Abraham Accords. So you've got the United Arab Emirates. You've got Bahrain over here, Sudan, which is not shown on the map and Morocco over here joined at the end of 2020. So there are things that are happening in the Middle East right now which are very significant for us. 
Uh, of course, here's the, here's the great uh, hater of Israel, Iran, and they're not very far away. Iraq is in between right there, and down here we have Saudi Arabia, and up there we have what used to be called Turkey. It's now called Turkey. It's, uh, they've changed their name just in the last uh, few weeks. So all Muslim nations, though, all the way around tiny Israel. So we shouldn't be surprised that uh, Israel is constantly in the news and we're bombarded about things that are going on with ongoing conflict and failed political attempts to bring lasting peace to this particular area. It seems that everybody, almost everywhere, whenever I have conversations with people, everybody seems to have a view. And uh, in that view, there doesn't seem to be any middle ground. People are either for Israel or they're against Israel. Very few people are, well, don't care too much. So today, I want to ask you to consider why Israel matters to us. Why Israel matters to the church. Now, I want to preface my comments by saying that reference to Israel in uh, all I'm about to say is to national Israel or Israel as a nation or a Jewish nation, if you like, or Israel as a people. I acknowledge that there are some who refer to the church as spiritual Israel or new Israel. And these particular people who have that theology teach that God has abandoned national Israel. There's nothing more for them. God is finished with them. They had their opportunity because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Now, I don't believe that support, uh, that uh, stance is supported by scripture. And that's for a number of reasons. Uh, They'll certainly become evident as we go through the week, but some of those reasons will become evident in what I'm about to share with you in the course of this message. So there are four basic ideas that I want to share with you today concerning why Israel matters to the church. The first is the faith we profess is Jewish in its origin. We are called Christians because we are followers of the Jewish Messiah or the Christ. His name and title in the Greek language uh, which is the common trade language of the day, and, and our New Testament was written in uh, the Koine Greek. His name there is Jesus Christos. In English, we call him Jesus Christ, but his Hebrew name and title is quite beautiful. Yeshua HaMashiach. Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah. And so the gospel, the good news is set in that Context of Jewish culture, Jewish history, in the land of the Jews, Israel. John's Gospel tells us that salvation is of or from the Jews. And Paul reminds us clearly in Romans chapter 9 that to them, to the Jews, and this is his words, pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. So we, we see that our, our faith in Jesus is very much tied up with this Jewish origin. So to do justice to the scripture, we must comprehend that Jewishness. God himself is called the God of Israel. 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the hope of Israel. And in Isaiah 46.13, God refers to the people of Israel as Israel, my glory. That's where we get the name of our magazine from. Now, you may recall that when Jesus was presented in the temple as a baby, a very devout elderly man called Simeon, who had been waiting for the consolation of Israel, it says, he blessed God, saying that his eyes had seen, and these are his words, God's salvation, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I I love that because right from the time when Jesus was small, and of course we could go back into the Old Testament as well, but right from the time that he was small, it was being declared that Jesus was a light for us, for non-Jews. For everybody, everybody right across the earth, Jesus would become a light of revelation of who God is and what God wants and how we can know God in our personal experience. And, of course, the glory of your people, Israel. As Jesus commenced his ministry, Nathaniel referred to him as the king of Israel. And I hope you're picking up how often the word Israel is coming up in this. Several years later, Paul spoke to Jewish leaders in Rome and he told them concerning the Messiah, this is in Acts 28.20, for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. So Israel matters to the church first because we worship a God whose revelation and plan of salvation for the whole world was and still is closely linked with the Jewish roots of our faith. So that's the first thing. So we belong to a Jewish religion, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. I think if Jesus came into some of our churches today, he would look around and say, oh, I'm not sure where I am. We seem to have got this idea in the Western world that Jesus belongs to us and the church, and we make it what we want to make it. But in reality, this is a Jewish religion. Here's the second thing. Israel matters to the church because God's word declares he is not finished with them. We know the Jews of the first century rejected Yeshua. There's no denying that the Jewish religious leaders and all of those who they could influence demanded the crucifixion of the Christ. Now, on the day of Pentecost, Peter did not mince his words. This is Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. And this is what he said. Jesus of Nazareth, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And then when we get down a bit further in verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Years later, Paul would explain that the Jews did this as a result of ignorance, pride, and a lack of faith. And Paul notes that this had been a recurring theme concerning Israel. In in Romans chapter 10 and verse 21, Paul quotes from Isaiah 65, and this is what he says. To Israel, he says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. 
So based on the lack of faith and the ignorance of God's righteousness, it would certainly seem logical to me, and it probably seems logical to you, and even justified, that God should push these people away. He should cast them aside. After all, they had their chance, and they rejected the Saviour. But thankfully, God doesn't think the way we think. Even in his wrath, God remembers mercy. And his covenant with the patriarchs is irrevocable. That's the word that's used in our scriptures. It's irrevocable. It cannot be revoked. It cannot be broken. It will not be taken away. Now, I want want you to consider Three lots of verses. Now, if you have your Bible with you, you might like to turn to Jeremiah 31. This is the great uh, chapter of the Bible where we learn about the new covenant. But part of what is written about the new covenant has this part first in Jeremiah 31 from verse 35. Now, I want to tell you, Jeremiah was a prophet in the midst of the exile. God is punishing his people. They are under judgment. And in the midst of judgment, this is what he says. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. Now, I want you to think about some of these words. If those ordinances depart, if heaven above, can we measure heaven for goodness sake? No. And and the sun and the moon and the stars would have to stop shining for God to say, you're gone, Israel. They will always be a nation before him because God declares it. Did you know that Jerusalem is the only city in all the Bible that we're commanded to pray for? I don't know whether you ever do pray, but that's a city that we're commanded to pray for. Why? Well, this is the city where Abraham offered up his son, Isaac. He was going to offer his son, of course, was going to kill him, but he offered his son, he put him on the altar. This is where David established his kingdom and his rule from Jerusalem or Jerusalem. This is where Solomon built the temple. This is where Yeshua was crucified and buried and then rose again from the dead. This is the place, and listen to this, where he's going to return one day and from which he is going to rule upon the earth in the millennial kingdom. In all of its long history, more than 3,000 years, Jerusalem has only ever been the capital of one nation. One nation, Israel. It's never been the capital of any Arab group. It's only ever been the capital of Israel. So we're told, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper 
who love you. That's Psalm 122 and verse 6. Now, Paul is going to clear up this question of Israel's rejection in the clearest possible terms for us in Romans 11. And we read parts of this, we read the first 11 verses before. I'm just going to pick out some verses from this. But I want, I want to point out something to you. When Paul wrote this, this is already more than 20 years after, it's something like 25 years after Jesus was crucified. Do you think if God rejected Israel, Paul had enough time to learn about it? That was before he wrote this book. So let's see what he says in this book. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? That word cast away means to push off or to reject. Has God rejected his people? And his next words in Greek are meganoito, which doesn't mean anything to you because it's all Greek. But if you were to go back and try and get it into the vernacular, what we might say today, today we might say, are you kidding me? Are you, are you serious? What it means literally is, is, uh, uh, may it not be. Absolutely not. By no means. That's what that word means. It's, it's the strongest negative you have in the Greek. Has God cast away his people? No way. He hasn't cast away his people. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, Paul writes, of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he says that in case you didn't get it the first time around, now in verse 2 he says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Then we come down to verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled? Now that's a different word. It means tripped. Or have they erred? Or have they sinned? Or have they failed that they should fall? And the NIV adds, beyond recovery. Have a guess what the next word. Meganoita. Absolutely not. No way. And then it says something that is very, very relevant to you and me. But through their fall, and this word fall here means their slip to a side, or their error, or their, their, their lapse, to provoke them to jealousy, Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Let's just think about that. To provoke them, salvation came to us. To provoke them. Before COVID came along and messed everything up, we used to have Israeli backpackers come and stay in our home. And we're shortly to begin. As a matter of fact, when we get back from this trip, uh, we'll open it up again because we're probably far enough down the track, although there's still a bit of COVID around, uh, to open it up. But the Israeli backpack, backpackers would come and stay in our house and almost to a, a, a person, the ones that came there would ask the question. Guess what their question was? Why? Why do you do this? Why do you open your house to us? Why is it you tell us we can come and stay for four or five days if we want to, and, and you don't charge us anything, you provide our food, you don't ask for anything. Why? Most of the world hates us. We know that. So why? Well, because we are followers of 
Israel's Messiah. And as soon as they ask that question, why, we have the opportunity to open up and say, the God of Israel is our God. The Messiah of Israel is our Savior. So we have a very good reason. And also because the scripture tells us whoever blesses Abraham will be blessed. We're commanded to bless Abraham. So God is using us to reach out to the Jews. And when they see this, and, and we've had, had them say this to us, I feel ashamed. What, what do you feel ashamed about? Well, you're talking about the God of Israel, and yet you were so devoted to him, and, and we're not. Provoked to jealousy. Because they see we have a relationship with their God. So they are jealous of that in the sense that they would like to have that too. And uh, we've had some absolutely amazing conversations with uh, Jewish people uh, on these topics. So let's go on. Romans 11 and verse uh, 23 says this, And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And then from verse 25 This is really important. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a blindness. They, They can't quite see who Messiah is until the fullness of all of us around the world has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. All Israel when? Well, if I get to go through end times with you, it'll be all Israel who are alive at the time of the second coming. And why? That's a subject for another day. So all Israel will be saved at that time. As it is written, and and this is how we know it's the end times, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God cannot be revoked. God made promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, down through the the uh, generations. And uh, God doesn't take his gifts back, and his calling is irrevocable. So God's word declares that he's not cast Israel away, and he is not finished with them. But wait, there's more. God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, which has never been completely fulfilled in human history. Now, Abraham was called, his his name was Avram. We call him Abram, but Avram. He was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, which is about 350 kilometers southeast of Baghdad. So think over to where Baghdad is and then go southeast. That's where he came from. And he was told by the Lord to go to a land that the Lord would show him, the land of Canaan. We read about this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. We then read of God's promises concerning that land and Abraham's descendants. 
And this is what it says in Genesis 12 and verse 7. To your descendants, I will give this land. And then in chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, and the Lord said to Avram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes and look to the place where you are, from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. You wonder why the Jews are so strong about their land? Here it is. I give it to you, you and your descendants forever, forever, forever. Not, not for a little while, not, not until you get kicked out of the country. I give it to you forever. Now, just like some of you are wondering now, you're thinking, hmm, how could you know that? Well, Avram asked God the same question. Chapter 15 and verse 8, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And right here in Genesis 15, God himself formalizes his promise to Avram by the cutting of a covenant. Ever heard of the cutting of a covenant? Okay, what happened in the ancient world was uh, if you wanted to make an agreement with somebody and it was like swearing uh, an oath that you would fulfill what you were doing, uh, you would take animals that were designated. In this case, God told Aram to get a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and then a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Those animals were killed and cut right down the very, oops, center. And half was put on this side and half was put on this side. And the people who were making this agreement would lock arms and they would walk through between the cut pieces. It's cutting, a covenant. And the covenant says, in effect, if I go back on what I'm promising you, may it be done to me as has been done to these animals. It's a very strong covenant. So Abraham went through and he did all this. And then in... Chapter 15 from verse 17 to 21, it says, when the sun went down and it was dark, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Let me just stop there for a minute. A smoking oven and a burning torch sort of just floated down between them. Where is Avram? He's over to the side. Why isn't he going through? Why isn't he walking through? Because God's the one making the covenant. You see, if Avram went through there with God, it would depend on him fulfilling his part and God fulfilling his part. But Avram was a man like you and me, a human being. Do we ever sin? Well, I don't know about you, but I do. Do you ever do what displeases God? I do. We do. It's part of the human condition. So God never allowed that situation. And when the Jews disobeyed God, they disobeyed him, but they didn't break the covenant because the covenant was made by God. It was a a covenant signed by God alone. And how do I know it was God who made the covenant when, when we've got symbolic things there? Well, because it says so. In verse 18, it says, on the same day, the Lord 
made a covenant with Avram. And what did he say in that covenant? To your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, uh, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I want you to think of the extent of the land that was promised to Avram. Now, we don't know exactly where these borders are because we don't know where some of these ancient peoples had their borders. But Israel has never had land borders that cover all of the area. And this is only symbolic of that area. It could be a little bit narrower, it could be a little bit wider, we don't know. But we do know it goes up to the Euphrates River and it comes down to the river of Egypt. So when is that going to be fulfilled? Because God promised it. We believe that's going to be fulfilled in the coming millennial kingdom. So why does Israel matter to the church? Because God made an unconditional covenant with them. God hasn't abandoned them. We can't say it's either them or us. It's all of us. God's made promises and blessings for us as the church, but God has promises and blessings also for the people of Israel. In their case, uh, they've been put to the side at the moment because of their unbelief, and we're motoring ahead in our faith, or at least we should be. But a time is coming when the two are going to converge again, and that's very exciting. You know why it's exciting? Because when God makes a promise, he doesn't lie. When God makes a promise, he sees it through to the end. And that's why we can trust God's word, because he's already demonstrated it. And I'm going to show you a little bit more in just a minute of how God has done this. Let's let's see the, the fourth of the points I want to share with you. The fulfillment of prophecy requires Israel as a nation to be in the land promised by God. Now, Scripture tells us of the, the scatterings of the people of Israel in disobedience and judgment. We, we know about that. And it also tells us about them coming back into the land in in-gatherings. But some of the Scriptures refer clearly to a time that is yet to come, uh, a time when God is going to bring Israel back into the land from countries all over the place. Now, if you've got your Scripture, you might like to turn to Ezekiel 36. Because once again, we've got one of these prophets from the time of the exile into Babylon. And this is amazing. And this looks right up to our present day. We see this prophecy fulfilled. Well, some of you are older than me, but uh, a few years older than me. And it's in your own lifetime. Ezekiel 36, and I'm going to read from verse 17 because I want to set the scene for you. And I want to show you that it's not like God just turned away and said, oh, it doesn't matter what my little boy Israel has done. It doesn't matter what sins they've committed. I forgive them because they're my children. No, it doesn't work like that. You listen. Verse 17 of Ezekiel 36. Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. Now listen to these next words. So I 
scattered them among the nations. And they were dispersed among the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. Now, history records it was the Romans who eventually scattered the uh, the Jews out of the land. That was about AD 132 to 135. And it became uh, such that uh, for a Jew to be in Jerusalem was on pain of death. They would be executed. You cannot come back to this place. The Romans did that when they tore the the, uh, the buildings down. They razed Jerusalem. They changed its name. They did all sorts of things. They were scattered in what became known as the diaspora. But behind the scenes, it was God's judgment. Now, that's how God himself sets the scene in the prophecy, and then it goes on in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel. He's talking about what he's about to tell them. I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I'm hallowed in you before their eyes. And that brings us to the very next verse. For I will take you out from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. For those of us who were around in 1948, no, I wasn't, but those who were around in 1948, you saw the fulfillment of this, where the Jews were taken, brought into their own land, and Israel became a nation again. Now, they've been gathered there in unbelief. So when we come down to here, I will sprinkle clean water. That is yet to come. That's going to come during the tribulation period and uh, the Jews will have to go through another time of tribulation. If we were to read chapter 37, the very next chapter of Ezekiel, you see the, the same thing in a different prophecy, but exactly the same story of the dry bones all coming back together and Israel coming back to life. Fantastic to read chapter 37 of Ezekiel an ultimate regathering, and then spiritual rejuvenation. So Israel back in the land right now is an amazing, miraculous work of God. They're not where God wants them to be, but they're back in the land. The first part of the prophecy has been fulfilled. Now, I used to be a history teacher for a number of years, and uh, I can't find anything in ancient history of any nation that became a nation again, a nation reborn after 1,900 years of destruction, persecution, and dispersion. They even restored the ancient language of Hebrew in the late 19th century. And then, of course, the 14th of May, 1948, they were declared a nation again, also according to God's word. 
Israel at the moment is largely in unbelief. It's uh, believed that probably about 48, 49% of Israel are, are completely secular. Might be a bit hard to believe. So only about half of the people are religious in any sense, and that's all the way from the ultra-Orthodox down to those who are the more uh, cultural believers. As far as Christian believers are concerned, there's about 182,000 by the latest statistics. That's about 2% of the population who are believers. But Israel, the people, national Israel, have to be back in the land as a precursor for end times uh, because these events are going to culminate with the second coming of Christ. Zechariah 12 tells us this. This is prophecy. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So Jews have to be in the land for that to come to fulfillment. I have put the verse up there. Zechariah 14 verses 1 and 2 says this, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Here we're referring to the time of Armageddon. In verses 3 to 5 in Zechariah 14, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. This is the second coming we're talking about. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain will move towards the north, half towards the south. Did you know that the Jordan Valley is a rift valley? They had an earthquake there this week. It's always moving. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with him. And we're going to be right there in that group with the coming of the Lord. We will be coming back with him in the second coming. So what events are going to take place between now and those days? Well, that's a topic for another day. Israel matters to the church because biblical prophecy requires Israel to be in the land. They have to be there or the rest of the promises cannot be fulfilled. In summary, what have we seen today? We follow a Jewish Messiah. God is not finished with Israel. God made an unconditional covenant with Avram. The fulfillment of prophecy requires Israel to be in the land. If we believe the word of God and we take it literally, we don't try to spiritualize it, we don't try to make it say something that it doesn't plainly say, Israel matters greatly to the church. So what can you do as we come in for a landing? Well, first of all, you can praise God that he keeps his word. He's kept his word to the the Jews even with their disobedience, because his word was made with an unconditional covenant. 
we should realize the Lord could return at any time. Any time. If you come along on Wednesday night, I'll explain that any time to you with the uh, doctrine of the rapture of the church. We should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. When you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you're praying for peace now, but you're praying for something more because there's only going to be a time in the future when real peace will come to Jerusalem. And that's when the Prince of Peace comes. And Jerusalem is his city. And the temple is his throne room. And from which he will rule over the whole earth. What else should we do? We should uphold the Jewish people and pray for their salvation and recognition of Yeshua as their Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, as we come before you, just having rehearsed these things, having thought about these things, and having seen how faithful you are to your own word, you do not break your promises. Thank you, Father. And thank you that that gives us reassurance of the blessing that we have and the promises that have been made that we have received. So, Lord, thank you, because in this dark world where so much seems so uncertain, where there are so many voices calling out, uh, we need certainty, and your word gives us that certainty. We bless you, dear Father. We bless the people of Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, both peace now in our day, but peace also in the day that